Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. All right. 
So welcome back to Romans. We had a little intermission for uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, and we are back into Romans 4. And before I dive into Romans 4, I wanted to share this social media post I saw this week. I thought it was funny. This is uh, Claire Coffey. I don't know who that is, but she says, the two kinds of Pauline epistles, which means letters by Paul, are number one, we are heirs through unfathomable grace to unimaginable glory. And number two, I am, as a personal favor, begging you sick little freaks to act normal for five minutes. If you've ever read the letters of Paul, that's basically what they say. You know, this is kind of it, right? Um, this, is, this is where we go. We go in these two directions. And actually, Romans 4 will do a little of both of these things here. So um, that's what we're going to get into tonight. So did you guys get Romans 4? Karen did a great job reading us through that big, whole, long passage. You, you got it? Everybody understand it? Everyone good? Hey, okay. If you didn't, you're in good company. Um, you might be ahead of, if you understood it, you might be ahead of me. This is one of those fun passages of Paul where you're like, wait, what? And where does this sentence go? And how do we switch metaphors in the middle of it? And what is circumcision doing in there? And I honestly was one of those where I had to print it out and read it out and look it over and over to try and get, uh, get a sense of what Paul is doing with it. Um, so if you didn't get it, that's okay. And we're not going to go through it verse by verse necessarily, because that would take a few hours and that wouldn't be fun. And so instead, we're going to look at the two big themes that sit on this passage, uh, the law and faith. So let's start with the first one. What's the law? Paul's going to talk about it a lot. He's going to say the law and just assume you know what it is. But what's the law? Sure. Law the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? A lot of stuff. Lot of stuff. <laughs> Say that again, Paul. Yeah, so right. There's there's actually two different things it can mean. Does anybody, first of all, this is a good, uh, probably the easiest Hebrew word you can get. What's the Hebrew word for the law? The Torah. Right, yeah, Torah. And it can refer to both the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but it can also refer specifically to the laws and the commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And if you're keeping track, there's 613 commandments that are given by Moses. And by either definition, the law was a really central part of Jewish identity, right? It taught you everything from how to cut your hair to mandating that you forgive debts and telling you that you needed to follow the Sabbath. And while some people followed the law more loosely, you also had groups like the Pharisees that believed that the reason that Israel was occupied, right, was that they weren't taking the law seriously. They believed that if only everyone finally took this thing seriously and followed all of the commands, then God would come, the Messiah would come, and God would purify Israel and fulfill the promises to his chosen people. And that makes sense, right? Because God's the one that gave them the law. So it would make sense that you're supposed to do this thing that, that God told you to do. And then Jesus comes along. And he says a bunch of things about the law. He says, you know, like if you think about it, the food laws are kind of silly. Because it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, but what comes out of you. And Jesus points out that David broke the law. And he heals on the Sabbath, intentionally provoking a response from those who want to uphold the law. 
And his primary sparring partners are the Pharisees, the people who are, are so obsessed with the law. And then Paul will go further as to say things like the law brings wrath or we are not under the law, but under grace. And all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And so when we hear things like that, we might think uh, the law is kind of forgettable at best, like it's a relic, but something we kind of close up and leave behind. Or terrible at worst, some sort of legal trap that just buries us in shame and condemnation. Maybe you've heard this idea that the law was given to drive people to desperation, really, to realize that they can't justify themselves before God so they would be ready to receive Jesus. And my biggest problem with that idea has always been this idea that God told people to do something and then let them languish in shame for like a thousand years based on a system that God gave them. That would be me, like me giving you half the rules to a puzzle and then letting you struggle for a really long time and then giving you the other half the rules just so you would be extra relieved. You would be extra relieved, but it'd be pretty cruel of me, don't you think? So I've never really been into the idea that the law is just this sort of cosmic setup. And the other problem with this view is that the Old Testament speaks of the law really positively. When you read about the way the Old Testament talks about the law, it doesn't say, oh, I'm just so ashamed because I can't follow the law. Instead, you find verses like this. Psalm 1, 2 and 3. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, and who meditates on his Torah day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So this is one of like dozens of passages in the Old Testament that talk about how awesome the law is, particularly for knowing God. And likewise, Paul himself will say that the law is good and given by God. And even Jesus will say, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So it can leave us really confused about how we're to understand this really big thing that Paul talks about. How can Jesus and Paul talk about the law so negatively? And yet Paul, Jesus, and the Old Testament can also sing its praises. And so this is where I want to take us into an analogy. I want us to talk about Augie and bedtime. And unfortunately, my analogy is a little bit out of date uh, in this particular season because Augie just started Little League and the games go super late and then daylight savings time happen and everything's kind of falling apart on the bedtime front. But go with me for a sec and pretend that Augie has a good bedtime and that we're really good at letting him know what bedtime is. For, for the purpose of our analogy, we'll say it's 8 p.m. We don't have that rule just for some arbitrary reason, right? We don't have a bedtime for Augie just to drive him to shame so he'll desperately cry out to us and be more reliant on us. We have it because it's good for him, right? You give a child a bedtime because it's good for them. It's good for them to go to bed on time so that they can have enough rest to do the day tomorrow. And likewise, if they go to bed whatever, whenever they want, they'll stay up way too late and be super cranky the next day and it won't go well. And this is basically what the book of Deuteronomy says about the law. If you follow it, it'll go well for you. And if you don't, well, it'll go poorly. 
And this is not necessarily because you provoke the wrath of God per se. It's because the commandment is for your own good. If you don't follow the commandments of God, it will go poorly. Now, all that to say, if Augie continually refused to do his bedtime, he would provoke our wrath, right? We would be angry about it. But honestly, that would actually have less to do with the law and more to do with the spirit of how he did it. If he stayed up a half hour late because he was helping his sister read or because he was playing with a friend who needed a friend, like we'd probably be totally okay with that. And yet at the same time, if he stayed up five minutes past his bedtime, but did so because he thought he was right and was disrespecting us, if it was a spirit of defiance, then we'd probably be pretty angry about it. And in fact, if he stayed up later than that in order to beat up his sister, you know, imagine that we'd probably go in with smoke coming out of our nostrils and break it up and say, you know what, for now, you've lost your bedroom altogether, which is what happens to Israel, right? God finally has enough of their just stubborn defiance that he says, you have lost the land and you can't have it back until you think about what you've done. So the commandment is good and it's given for a good purpose. And we can provoke God's wrath by not following the commandment. But imagine if Augie were 21 and he came to me and said, I followed my bedtime every night. You love me, right? Imagine that. I went to bed exactly when you said every night, I'm your child, right? Because I did what you said. Imagine if he said that to us. Imagine if your child said that to you. How heartbroken would you be to think that's what you thought bedtime was about? You thought that it was only if you followed bedtime every night that you would be loved by us? That's not what it was ever about. We don't love you because of bedtime. We love you just because. We love you because you're our child. We love you even if you never went to bed on time and even if you ruined your life and even if you threw it away on the dumbest things possible, you would still be our child and we would still love you. Just follow your bedtime. But bedtime is not a means to earn your parents' love. Bedtime is not a means to earn God's love, if that analogy makes sense. You guys with me? You understand what we're talking about? We're not talking about bedtime, right? We're talking about the law. Yeah. And this is what Paul is getting at in Romans. The rules are good. They make sense. They're given for our own goodness. But following the rules is not the way to win God's favor. The rules are for wisdom, and they may even help you be a good person. But they're not a means to become a child of God. That only comes when we stand before God and receive the awesome promise of love that God has given us and accept. We become children of God, not through the law, but when we open our hands in faith and simply receive And to bring us back to Romans 4, what Paul is saying 
is that this is not some cosmic switcheroo, right? This is how we sometimes portray it, that Israel is given the law and then Jesus reveals faith. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying exactly the opposite. He's saying this system of faith has been there since the very beginning. And we see that in Abraham. And if you remember the story of Abraham, right? Abraham is called by God and he's an elderly man. And God says, hey, guess what? You and your elderly wife, you're going to have a baby. And not only are you going to have a baby, many kings will come for that baby. And I'm starting a whole new covenant family. And through your descendants, the entire creation will be redeemed. And you and your wife, you're the first ones in. And Abraham, despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite the fact that he's old, that his wife is old, and there's no nation. You know, God says, I'm going to make nations out of you. There's no nations around that he's looking at. Imagine if someone said that to you. Despite all this, despite the fact that God could call anyone else but him, Abraham believes God. He receives. He says, okay. And God credits him as righteous. Or God reckons him as good. Or God adopts him into the new covenant family. That's actually a hard phrase to translate. He credits him as righteousness is the way the NIV does it. But it's, it means he's in. God's starting a new covenant family. And God says, yeah, you're in. For good. For permanent seas. However you would say that. For, you know. You're in. You're good. Forever. No matter what. And in Paul's day, many people wondered about Abraham. Why Abraham? Was he like particularly holy? There was this idea that maybe he'd been given like an advanced copy of the law and he was living that out. But Paul says exactly the opposite, that Abraham was just a regular old ungodly pagan who didn't know any better. He didn't have the law. He wasn't yet circumcised. And yet God called him and he said yes. And that's all that really matters. And so in this regard, Abraham is actually like Augie, right? It's not that he's done something amazing. It's that he's a child just because, and he simply has to receive it. And receiving that love is called faith. And like Abraham, when we receive that love, when we say yes, God says, cool. You're in. You're good. Forever. No matter what. And so God will give Abraham circumcision as a way to mark this new covenant. And then he'll give him the law, give Moses the law as a way for the people of Israel to live out the covenant. And yet at the end of the day, neither is a way into the covenant. Instead, it's the simple belief that God has called you just because. And again, this might feel like a switcheroo that, you know, like, no, you know, the Old Testament says the law. And then now all of a sudden there's the switcheroo of Jesus. But if you go back and read the Old Testament through this lens, you'll actually find all these verses like this. Like this is Psalm 51, 16 and 17, where David is writing and he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. In other words, David is saying the primary thing you want is not another bull. It's not just uh, just 
Rep obedience for the sake of obedience, it's me. You want me. You want me to come before you humble and open and ready to receive. And there's, there's actually lots of Old Testament verses. I'd love to have a couple hours just to go through it because I think this is such a valuable thing that even in the Old Testament, this isn't a switcheroo. All in the Old Testament, it's, it's faith, it's belief. It's accepting the love of God and believing you are loved just because. Now, what's interesting in that passage in Psalm 51, as David concludes, he'll say, I'm gonna go bring sacrifice. So it's not that the law is wrong. It's not that these commandments are dumb. They're just not the way to know God. Bedtime is not the way to become a child. Instead, we simply receive that God loves us just because. And so the first thing Romans 4 calls us to is to accept that love. That you are loved by God just because. You are loved in the way a parent looks at their child and says, I could never not love you. Sure, I might be angry at you day in and day out, but I could never not love you. You are my child just because. Can you receive that? Maybe you've never received that before. And you need that love to come and change you, or maybe you have, and yet you get busy. You get down the road of faith and you start thinking, no, I need to do, I need to do all these things for God. But God says, no matter what, you're good. Before you ever do anything for Jesus, you're good. Before any volunteer hours, before you get the morality right, you're you're good. You are loved by God. And you might hear that voice in you saying, what about morality? What about all those things? And Paul's going to get there. He's going to talk about it. But first, he starts here for a reason. He says, you're good. You're good. Happens about once a year, someone joins the church, and they spend like the first three months just worrying that they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and get kicked out. Maybe that they had a bad experience with church before. And I always just want to say to them, like, you're good. We're not actually looking for a reason to kick you out. As long as you want to be here, you're good. And this is what God says to you. I'm not actually looking for a reason to be mad at you. You're good. And Paul's writing to two different groups, right? He's writing to these Gentile converts who may have lived these messy lives before. And he's writing to the righteous religious folks who've been, you know, good Jews their entire life. And to both of them, he says the same message is true. You are good just as you are. There's nothing we can do to earn this calling. God wants you for deep and loving relationship. God wants you for his covenant family, just like he did for Abraham. And by you, believe it or not, by us, he will redeem the entire world. But he doesn't call you because you're anyone special. You're just a good ungodly pagan like Abraham. And he says, I want you. And all you have to do is say, okay. And God says, you're good. 
And now there is a social aspect to this message as well. In the same way that Paul says both sides of you are good. If we remember the original context of this letter, right? You have Jewish Christians and you have Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians are coming in and the good Jewish folks are seeing these ungodly pagans joining the church. And they're, they're coming in and they're not getting circumcised and they're not following the law. And, uh, um, and Paul, and, and it's causing all sorts of problems. Like, what do these folks have to do to join? And what Paul is saying to them is to the, you know, to you good Jewish folks, to you good righteous religious folks, you see there's ungodly pagans coming in. You have to accept them apart from circumcision in the law because Abraham was an ungodly pagan too. And he was adopted by God apart from circumcision or the law. So there's dirty, smelly folks over there. You have to make room for them. And before, you know, the, these converts get off the hook, he says the same thing to them. He says, you, you, go, you ungodly pagans who God has called in, you see those annoying religious folks over there? You think they're better than everyone else? They also were saved by grace. They also were adopted as children of God, apart from circumcision and the law. So you got to make room for them too. It says that both of you stand under Abraham together. This is the, right in the middle of our passage, Abraham, uh, Romans 4, 11 to 12. So then, Abraham is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I know that's a mouthful, but what he's saying is Abraham doesn't belong to one side or the other. He's the father of both, that they are both descendants of Abraham. So you can think about this a little bit. If you put up the, the next slide, where are you on this scale? Here, Gary puts up a slide with a two-sided arrow. And on one side, it says ungodly pagan. And on the other side, it says righteous religious person. I know I'm using kind of facetious terms there, right? But maybe you're the like person who lived a wild, dramatic life and Jesus saved you. And you're like, oh man, Jesus just has this radical grace for me. And you're over on that ungodly pagan end of things. Maybe you're over on this other side and you've been like a good, faithful Christian your entire life. And you're kind of frustrated that like the people on the other side don't take sin super seriously. Wherever you are, this is what Paul does in this passage. As the slides progress, we have the same graphic of the ungodly pagan on one side and the righteous religious person on the other side. But now Abraham shows up on the top of the screen and there are arrows pointing down to both the ungodly pagan and the righteous religious person. He says that you both belong to Abraham. You're both children of Abraham. So wherever you've come from, however you've gotten here, a little bit of get over it and love that person that's next to you because they also are a child of Abraham. So that's the social, social message of this passage as well. Wherever you are kind of on that, that scale there, Paul is telling you to make room for the other person because they've been saved by grace, just like you. 
Just as we have to receive radical grace for ourselves, we have to give it to the others. We have to remember that God has called them just because as well, even though they annoy us. So wherever you are on that scale, I want you to think about how, who you have the hardest time receiving and what it would look like to have God's grace for them. So at the end of the day, what we have in Romans 4, and I'll close with this, is actually a theological retelling of the prodigal son story. We might not realize that, but Romans 4 and Luke 15 are actually doing basically the same thing. And if you remember the story of the prodigal son, right, there's two sons. There's the younger brother, first of all, who rejects his father's love and he runs away from home and he blows his entire inheritance on prostitutes and wild living. And we should actually glorify that, right? Sometimes we glorify the younger brother, but it's like, no, he, he ends up in death. He doesn't follow his bedtime and he ends up in death. He doesn't follow the commandment and it goes badly for him. The law is good. And yet when he returns to his father, he tries to give him this speech, right? And he says, I've broken all the rules. So how about you accept me back, not as a son, but as a servant? And when he goes to do that, what's his father do? He says, no, absolutely not. You are my child, no matter what. You were never a child because you followed the rules. You were my child just because, and now you're home, so let's party. You are a child just because, so let yourself be loved. Amen? And when this happens, what happens to the older brother? How's he respond? He's not happy, right? You letting that guy? The guy who broke all the rules? I've been here this entire time following all the rules. I've gone to bed on time every night. And you letting that guy? And his father says to him, you're right. You have been following all the rules. You've gone to bed on time every night. But you did all that just to win some sort of like favor from me, some sort of small goat from me, and that you never realized that this entire household belongs to you. The rules are good, but it's not about the rules. You're my son. You're my child. Just because. Can you also receive my extravagant love? And in my experience, there's nothing worse than an older brother who can't make room for a sinner who wants to come home. And there's nothing worse than a saved sinner who runs around judging others for their sins. So all I want to say is this, is that you are all here because of grace. No matter who you are. So as Paul would say, be kind to each other. And hear these words from God. You are loved just as you are, before you do anything for God, you are loved. Just like Abraham, just like David, just like Paul, God has chosen you to be part of his covenant family. 
There's nothing you can do to earn it. You can only receive it. So as we close, let us open our hands. And I invite you to take a minute to receive this awesome love of God. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.